Essays 29 through 34 of It's a Good Old World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. It's a Good Old World by Bruce Barton. Essay number 29. Hezekiah is dead, but his formula still holds good. There is a certain man among my acquaintances who, with a little less ability, would have made a splendid success. That sounds strange, but employers of men will understand it. They will have a picture right away of the kind of man he is. In his boyhood he mowed lawns, like the other boys. Also he ran a lemonade stand, and managed a newspaper route, and was forever figuring out a new scheme. He graduated from high school and entered business with great promise. But he had not been at work three months before he was running a couple of little private businesses on the side. So he has continued through life, cursed with the unhappy gift of being able to do three or four things at once. He ekes out a very fair income today, drawing it in little bits from half a dozen different sources. But he is getting along in life, and there is no one single business of which he can say, I made it. He has scattered himself so widely that there is not one spot in the world's life that bears the permanent imprint of his effort. Twice he has almost broken down from overwork. And four of the men who were his boyhood playmates, men who were satisfied to mow lawns and attempt nothing else, have plugged along, each in a single business, and with far less ability than he, have reached a higher place in the world. I was reminded of him last night in running across a reference to Lord Mount Stephen, in the new biography of James J. Hill. George Stephen, he became Lord Mount Stephen afterward, was the son of a carpenter in Dufftown, Scotland. He worked for a time in a shop in Aberdeen, but was brought to America at an early age and became one of the makers of Canada and a power in the British Empire. In 1901, visiting Scotland, the carpenter's son was presented with the freedom of the city of Aberdeen, and this is what he said. Any success I may have had in life is due in great measure to the somewhat Spartan training I received during my Aberdeen apprenticeship, on which I entered as a boy of fifteen. To that training, coupled with the fact that I seem to have been born utterly without the faculty of doing more than one thing at a time, is due that I am here before you today. I had but few wants and no distractions to draw me away from the work I had in hand. It was impressed upon me from my earliest years by one of the best mothers that ever lived, that I must aim at being a thorough master of the work by which I got my living, and to be that I must concentrate my whole energies on my work, whatever that might be, to the exclusion of every other thing. Concentration. With the exception of honesty, it covers a larger measure of the secret of success than any other word. I once asked a very successful man, how he was able to get so much done and still have leisure time. I pick up only one paper from my desk at a time, he said, and I make it a point not to lay that paper down until I have settled the business that it involves. I was present in his office when a friend came to offer him a participation in an enterprise that promised to be very profitable. He answered, I can't do it, Jim. I don't need the money, and no amount of money could possibly compensate me for the nuisance and inefficiency of having to carry two things on my mind at the same time. 
If you want a very good example of how big things are done, read the description of the creation of the world as recorded in the first chapter of Genesis. It is a fine little treatise on efficiency. An enormous job, but no hurry, no rush, no confusion. One day the creation of light, nothing else. The next day the firmament. The third day the creation of land and its division from the waters. One thing each day, followed by a good night's sleep, and a full day's rest at the end of the week. The world has never improved on that formula for success. It was the formula of Hezekiah, who refused to dally with sidelines or attempt more than one thing at a time. And in every work that he began he did it with all his heart, and prospered. End of Essay Number 29 Essay Number 30 The Fine Rare Habit of Learning to Do Without Curious things come to light when men are dead and the lawyers are busy with their estates. Some months ago in New York, a bank president died. I had never seen him, but his name was familiar enough, and I supposed that, of course, he must have left a considerable fortune. Apparently, everyone else was of the same opinion, including even the business associates who knew him best. Imagine, then, their surprise when it was discovered that, instead of an estate, he had left debts of thousands of dollars. Had he lost heavily in the market? No. Apparently he never speculated at all. Foolish investments? No. Women and wine? No. Incredible as it seemed, this man whose income was more than a hundred thousand dollars a year got rid of it all, not in gambling or dissipation, but in the everyday expenses of living. He had come up through the various stages of bank employment to the presidency of a great institution and at every point in his career his expenses were in excess of his income. Even when the income crossed the $100,000 mark, it was still a few steps behind. Never for one moment had he been the master of his life. At 100000 a year he was as much the slave of circumstance as any $12 a week clerk whose expenses are $14. An extraordinary case, you exclaim. Yes, but extraordinary only in the size of the figures involved. In all other respects, the gentleman was typical of a large percentage of his fellow countrymen. A general he was, in the unfortunate army of those who take orders of their fears and march day after day to the music of a piper whom they cannot afford to pay. What a curious phenomenon it is that you can get men to die for the liberty of the world who will not make the little sacrifice that is needed to free themselves from their own individual bondage. All of us are born into the world free, and immediately we begin to get ourselves into slavery to things. We let the number of things that are necessary for our daily life multiply to such an extent that we have neither time nor money for the things that really count. I stood the other night in a big store, looking around at the shelves. And it came over me with a sudden shock that, of all the hundreds of articles displayed on the shelves around me, hardly a single one was considered a necessity by my grandfather. None of them were included in the lives of the ancient Greeks, who gave birth to more great men than any similar period of history has been able to produce since. Once a year, at least, I like to get down Thoreau's Walden, and read it over again and I pass on that good tonic to any of you who may not have discovered it yet. Thoreau was a Harvard graduate who built a hut for himself on the shores of a little lake near Concord, Massachusetts, 
and lived in it for two years and two months. For eight months of the period he kept careful financial records, and in that time his total expenses, including the cost of his house, were $61.99, of which he earned by raising vegetables and by occasional day labor more than half. He threw worry out the window, reduced his living expenses to a point where he could provide them with the labor of a very small part of his days, and so freed the remainder of his life for reading and writing and tramps through the woods and useful thought. We cannot all do what Thoreau did, but at least the war helped us to learn the lesson of his example. It set us to questioning of each element in our lives. Is this worth what I have been paying for it? And to pondering on the important truth that no man is so independent as he who has learned to do without. End of Essay Number 30 Essay Number 31 It Ruined Michelangelo and it can ruin you. Lincoln said a wonderfully wise thing one day. I have talked with great men, he said, and I cannot see wherein they differ from others. Too many of us have a distorted notion of great men. We see them only on their successful side, and imagine that they have no other. As a matter of fact, the great man is precisely like ourselves, a mixture of success and failure, of joy and deep depression. And very often, if we would study him upon the side of his failures, we might learn more useful lessons than those that his successes teach. No greater genius existed in his generation than Michelangelo. With such magnificent abilities, he should have been a happy man. Yet he was of all men most miserable. His letters abound in melancholy laments. What was the secret of his misery? Failure to apply himself? From boyhood into old age he worked incessantly. Extravagance? He denied himself even the ordinary comforts, to say nothing of the luxuries of his life. No, his tragedy lay within himself, partly in a pessimistic temperament inherited from his father, but chiefly in this fatal weakness. He never had the spiritual courage to say no. Before he had well begun one work, he allowed his patrons to force other commissions upon him. He undertook too many things, and as a result, in agony of spirit over promises unfulfilled, over work begun and left half done, he passed his miserable days. Modern society is in a conspiracy to ruin men as Michelangelo was ruined. It comes with a thousand conflicting claims. Be chairman of this, it asks, or go on this committee, or leave what you're doing and tackle this new job. And no man accomplishes anything really worthwhile unless he learns early to harden his will and to utter that little word, no. How did you come to discover the law of gravitation? A pretty woman asked Sir Isaac Newton. By constantly thinking about it, madam, the great man replied. Newton might have served on a hundred committees. He might have invented a patent churn. He might have made some money in the stock market in those years when he was constantly thinking about gravitation. But he held himself firm to his single purpose, and did the great thing, resolutely refusing the thousand tempting diversions. It's a curious fact that most children learning to talk can say no long before they can utter the syllable yes. Yet men find it so easy to say yes and almost impossible to say no. In that fact lies the secret of many failures. It ruined Michelangelo, 
that fatal inability to say no and it will ruin any man who does not set himself resolutely on guard against it end of essay number thirty one essay number thirty two don't expect anything very startling from an oracle in his home one evening i talked with a successful businessman and he said to me something like this each year in business i learn a few new things and each year i discover that a few of the things i learned the year before are not so very true after all so when i come to strike a balance the annual increase in wisdom isn't anything very great but of four truths i am entirely sure very early in my business career i learned that it is never wise to say i will never work for so-and-so or i will never live in such and such a place youth sets out with a good many such prejudices which it regards as convictions but as time goes on one discovers that no man ever had a point of pride that was not a weakness to him i will work for anyone today who is honest and who has something to give me in the way of advancement or knowledge that i do not already have and i will live anywhere that my work calls me a little later i added this second bit of knowledge i quit trying to tell other men what they ought to do with their lives a man's career is a matter to be settled by himself his wife and his creator i will help when my help is asked if i can but i will not take the presumptuous chance of sticking my finger into the wheels of another life unless i am specifically invited later still i concluded never to say to any man if you don't do so and so i'll quit because one day one of them answered quite properly all right then quit fourthly and finally he said i have learned never to slight a young man there is a double reason for that of course in the first place it's good religion every older man ought to be a kind of unofficial trustee for youth but in the second place it's good business it may be an exaggeration to say that any boy can become president of the united states but it's certain that any office boy may be purchasing agent or general manager or president of his company ten years from now and when he arrives i want him on my side nothing very startling in all this you say not a very imposing array of knowledge for a man to have gathered in thirty-five or forty years very true but the more you listen to successful men the more you are impressed by the fact that the only bits of truth they value are truths so old that most of us learned them all in sunday school honesty is the best policy no hard work is ever lost what a man sows that shall he reap these are about all that the average wise man is sure of and they are enough the greeks had an institution which they called an oracle a place where the voice of the gods might be heard usually the utterances of the oracle ran somewhat after this fashion go at the enemy as hard as you can and if you fight better than he does you will win millionaires are the modern popular oracles a good many men gather around them thinking that some day the great one will give them a tip by means of which they may succeed i have listened to several millionaires and what they say is usually very sound and true so sound and true indeed that it has been long ago accepted by the race and may be found in any good first reader end of essay number thirty two essay number thirty three on hearing from many unhappy husbands and wives in an unguarded moment when i was the editor of a magazine i invited letters on the subject my marriage and the letters came not in hundreds 
but in thousands. I confess that the reading of them left me with a certain sense of depression. So large a percentage were from wives who do not like their husbands, and from husbands who wish they had never married their wives. Of course, I might have expected that if I had thought about it in advance. And there is in it no real cause for discouragement. Happy nations, according to the old saying, have brief histories, and the same is true of contented couples. Oh, nothing ever happens to us, the happy wife or husband says, a bit wistfully. We just float along from day to day. We hardly know where the time goes. But the individual who is not happy supposes himself something unique in the world. He broods over his troubles. He wonders why heaven has set him apart from all mankind to bear so great a disappointment. And, feeling thus, he embraces every opportunity to ease his spirit by complaint. There are many men and women in the world, of course, who have no right to expect to be happily married. They misinterpret marriage. They embark upon it as if on some sort of picnic, whereas a single moment's serious thought ought to convince them that it is the greatest and most difficult profession in the world. They remind me of the man who was asked if he could play the violin, and answered, I don't know. I've never tried. Marriage is not a pleasure excursion. It is a business to be studied, a kingdom to be conquered, a mine of precious treasure which reveals itself only in response to patient work. Men who study years to master the comparatively simple professions of law or medicine or journalism suppose that the mere accident of their being males is all that is necessary to make them successful husbands. Girls who have never learned to carry through capably the simplest operations of life dance blithely into the most intimate and subtle and baffling of human relationships. And, naturally, there are wrecks. Sorrow and disappointment in some degree come to all of us, deserving or undeserving. No couple can hope completely to avoid them. But there are certain rocks in the channel of the good ship marriage that ought to be cleared away at the very start. The rock called money, for example. I hate to ask John for money, said a wife to me last week, because if I don't ask him, I'll probably get more. No woman ought ever to have to ask her husband for money. She ought to have a salary, a fixed, regular part of her husband's income, deducted first, not last, and apportioned to her with the understanding that it is hers, not because he gives it to her, but because she has earned it by her contribution to their common life. Until the world recognizes that the business of contributing children to the race and training them is the most splendid of all professions, far more important than anything that any man does in any office, and ought to be paid for accordingly, we shall continue to have wives asking their husbands for money, and marriages going into the discard on that account. Most of all, no man or woman can be permanently happy unless each has within himself some green pastures on which his soul can feed, some reservoir of contentment and self-sufficiency created by himself for his own refreshment. The restlessness of the modern woman that we read so much about, the envy of men and women toward people who seem better off, rise largely from the false assumption that what is outside a man or woman has the power to create or destroy happiness. Nothing outside yourself can make you happy, if you are barren inside. The kingdom of heaven is within you. On that great undying truth, successful marriages always have been and always must be built. End of essay number 33
Essay number 34. What makes medium-sized men great? A man had died, and the whole city mourned his going. At a club we were discussing him, reminding ourselves of one characteristic and another that had endeared him to us. Finally, a man whose name is famous spoke. You know our friend hardly had a fair start, he said quietly. Nature did not mean to let him be a big man. She equipped him with very ordinary talents. I can remember the first time I heard him speak. It was a very stumbling performance. Yet, in his later years, we regarded him as one of the real orators of his generation. His mind was neither very original nor very profound, but he managed to build a great institution, and the imprint of his influence is on ten thousand lives. The speaker stopped, and we urged him on. How then do you account for his success? we asked. It is simple, he replied. He merely forgot himself. When he spoke, his imperfections were lost in the glow of his enthusiasm. When he organized, the fire of his faith burned away all obstacles. He abandoned himself utterly to his task, and the task molded him into greatness. A few days afterward I spent some hours in the home of a very wealthy man. Young men come and ask me to use my influence in their behalf to secure them this or that promotion, he said. And I am amazed, not by their request, but by the attitude toward life which prompts them. I feel like saying to them, The very fact that you spend your time and thought campaigning for another position proves that you are not worthy even of the position that you now hold. Then he went on to speak about his own career, which started with the salary of an office boy, and has carried him so far. I never asked for an increase in salary, he said. I never asked for promotion or even thought about it. I had only one single thought, how to make that company as great and as influential as it could possibly be. I believed that by extending its influence we were extending human happiness. More than anything else, I wanted to see it reach people in every corner of the world. We made that vision come true, and those of us who achieved it discovered that the company to which we had given our lives had given them back to us a hundred times richer than our own selfish thought and planning could possibly have made them. It is Emerson who somewhere says that the average run of men fret and worry themselves into nameless graves, while here and there a great unselfish soul forgets itself into immortality. Many hundred years before, a much wiser man had said, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. A rather cryptic utterance, so contradictory in sound that the majority of men pass it by unheeding. But now and then there comes a man who, sensing its truth, harnesses his life to it, forgetting every selfish thought and purpose. Often he knows himself to be a little man, or, at best, only medium-sized. But the world, beholding the marvel of his influence, remembers him and calls him great. End of Essay number 34